0: Second Peter chapter One, verse three to eleven that is that is the inspiration for the series that we are currently in and uh, so uh, i 'm just going to read out because it 's the start of a new month and the start of a new virtue i 'm just going to um, revisit uh, the passage that has inspired this series. So let me read this out to you um, there 's a bit of Bible to go through today, so make some notes as we go and um, and we will um, Yeah, we will have an interesting time today just learning about a new virtue uh, just from the beginning part and then we will have other people speaking into that through the course of this month. So let's just read quickly together here. Uh, Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. To godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Hopefully that's going to Yep. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if any of you do not have them, you are nearsighted and blind, and you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In the middle of that passage is a list of virtues, a section of virtues there. And they've been laid out in an intriguing way, and they're chosen for their effectiveness in dealing with persecution from outside, but also from divisive forces from within. We've been exploring these virtues month by month, and our model hopefully helps us to remember, like I said. So the first virtue was, is, the floor, the foundation is faith, all right? This is where we interact a bit, okay? So faith at its most cured or most mature expression starts with C. Oh, Wow. (laughs) <laughs> something, something that is, um, when we cure a slab, it, it gets firm and it, and, it, and it actually gets strong enough to build on. And faith, when it is cured, becomes conviction. All right? It's the unshakable knowledge, that stuff that just says nothing can move me. I know what I know, I believe what I believe, and I'm not going to deviate from that. All right? Convictions are decisions we make before the decision even needs to be made. They're conclusions we've reached, and they can't be changed. And by faith, we, there's some things that we just know are mystery. We learned that last week. And yet, through faith, we live convinced of those things. Conviction. Then we did a framework, didn't we? The framework is called, in the, the, the virtue that we talked about is? Goodness, thank you, and goodness, um, you know, when it's really well developed, when you've got excellent conduct, when you've got excellent character, what is the outcome? Structural integrity, thank you very much, awesome. And then most recently, we completed last week, this wall behind me here, all right, and that is the virtue of knowledge, and when it's knowledge best used well is wisdom, excellent. All right, now we're on to something. Today, we're going to begin a new stage. And I'm just going to symbolically begin that. The next virtue on Peter's list, after faith, after goodness, after knowledge, is, what was it on your list? self Control. Oops, that didn't work out. <laughs> Self-control. Today, I'm just going to start in a relatively simple way. And then we have Chris next week, and we have Marguerite the week after helping build on that. If we remember what's going on here, Peter is writing to counter some the emergence of a lot of false sort of stuff going on in the church. He had a group of rising up false teachers happening, and they are distorting the message of the gospel. Now, there are different theories. Uh, There is definitely the word Balaamite being used in in Peter's letter to describe um, a seductive sort of um, divisive sort of teacher in amongst that. And there's also the belief of an early system of Gnosticism kind of rising up as well. And the life of discipleship that Peter is calling here is actually, he's calling for the church to pursue the complete opposite of what those false guys were promoting. He endorses knowledge because he wants to combat those false teachers. Gnostic actually comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnostics were people that claimed a certain degree of knowledge. They would claim that they had knowledge that others don't have. They would claim that they had revelation that others don't get. They would argue that they are the right ones. And they would argue that they are right despite apostolic, scriptural, proper, orthodox doctrine. But the knowledge and the wisdom that results from the Spirit would be far superior to those things because it would draw us back to actual truth in God.
1: These guys were present when the scriptures were being penned.
0: And I do believe that that sort of spirit and that sort of falsehood still has an expression today. There are people that do want to drag the people of God astray within the life of the church. Not just the outside forces, but people inside the church that were very happy to divide and conquer within in order to get their own agendas across, and they will teach false things in order to do that. We also know that these teachers had thrown all restraint out the window too. Chapter 2 spells out a really bleak picture of people who would call themselves church leaders and teachers, and yet they would behave even publicly in the most depraved way. If you go over to chapter 2 of his letter, you'll read phrases like this. These false guys revel in their pleasures while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. They seduce the unstable. They are springs without water. They, are, they mouth empty words. They appealed to the lustful desires of the flesh. They promised freedom, but they themselves are slaves of depravity. That's Peter's description of false teachers within the life of the church. That's scary. There's an unrestrained bunch described here. And then chapter 3 goes on to call the church back to wholesome, holy, godly thinking and living. And in amongst all that, for disciples to stand firm and be a cut above these teachers, self-control was a must. The Gnostics claimed knowledge but showed no restraint. But disciples with conviction, with integrity, with wisdom, well, they're only well succeeded. They're ready to succeed when it comes to the area of self-control. Get those three virtues right, self-control is a natural progression from that.
1: The Greek word Peter uses for self-control
0: indicates that he's appealing to the inner strength of a person. He's actually calling us to look inside of ourselves when it comes to self-control. Throughout the scriptures, the idea of self-control speaks of a person's ability to master their emotions, their desires, and their passions, rather than be controlled by them. We're shown the way of self-control, even in the wisdom literature. Proverbs 25 says that a person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. No self-control, no defenses, big trouble. Open to attack. Proverbs 5, Solomon writes, Your paths, your ways, are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. To pursue wisdom actually requires a self-controlled approach. A person who pursues evil instead of righteousness becomes captive to his sin. And their lack of self-control is a large part
1: of their undoing. We see that
0: self-control actually features at times in Paul's personal gospel. In our young adults group, I actually asked at the start of the year, and we're pursuing this throughout the year. What is your gospel? How do you present your gospel, and and does it shift, does it change when it comes to different audiences? Not not in a way that changes your convictions, but are there things you emphasize in different settings that you don't in others? What is your gospel? What are the things you believe the gospel calls you to? What does it do in you? What does it do around you? Acts 24 shows us an example of where Paul actually shares his gospel and he gets to reason out his faith with the Roman governor, Felix. In verse 25, Paul's gospel, his presentation or his defense, whatever you want to think about it, he lays it out in three parts. He talks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment.
1: Paul
0: importantly, shows us in Galatians 5 that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's important to know that. To Paul, this is a trait within us that proved the Holy Spirit had a seed of influence in our life. The fruit of the Spirit actually means more than the gift doesn't matter that we speak in tongues if we don't have self-control. It doesn't matter that we do all this prophecy and all this other stuff if we don't have the fruits like love and patience and perseverance and all those things.
1: And because it's a fruit of the Spirit, again, even with self-control, with
0: this idea of self, self, self thrown in, it's actually still not a call for Christians just to try harder. You know, we talk about faith a lot as in just try harder, just try harder, just try harder, just try harder. No, no, no. Even in self-control, it is more of a case of cling to the Spirit, cling to Jesus, cling to His power, cling to what He does in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit.
1: Self-control
0: is the ability to operate from the grace that has been provided for us. Through the power of the Spirit, we actually have an opportunity for self-control that the world does not have. Paul would later assure a young pastor, Timothy, that God's provision is not fear, but power, love, and self-discipline. So when it comes to self-control through the Holy Spirit, we're actually given what
1: we need to succeed. Now, when I say all that, my mind has all sorts of questions. Why is it that some Christians display stronger self-control than others? Why do some kick habits while others drop the ball? Why do some get victories and others falter? (laughs)
0: Also, if I'm honest and asking on behalf of both myself and you, why do other people apparently do better than I do at times? You ever ask that question? How can they do it? How, can they, how do they nail it? How do they get it? How do,
1: Come on, you know?
0: There are many ways we could examine this. And over years, I've seen a lot. And we're going to hear, hopefully, some experience from the next two speakers as well. Uh, and some more insights about this as we go along. Uh, maybe in different areas and stuff like that. This morning, I want to offer a few brief and general ideas, giving the other guys space to speak on that. I'm going to give three ideas about self-control, understanding that all of this is under the banner of the Holy Spirit's work in us.
1: First thing I want to throw out is that after the day of our salvation, our life becomes a battle of selves. We inherit
0: something. Colossians 3 shows us an indication of this. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Seeing the underlines there, old self, new self.
1: At salvation, through the work of the Spirit,
0: we put off our old self and we have a new self given to us. It's not in our own image, but this is the part of us that is reflecting the glory of Jesus more and more. Spiritually speaking, this is a new identity. The grace and the infrastructure of our construction is working. Jesus is operating in our life. Our knowledge of Him is growing. And we enter by faith a state of renewal, not decay,
1: when we receive this new self.
0: Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that as believers, we no longer live. Instead, the life of Christ flows through us instead. So self-control is actually a matter of deciding which self we want to be identified with. And much of our Christian living revolves around which self we choose to feed, which one we indulge, which one we, we, we want to give attention to. The Scriptures tell us that our old self only has one agenda, and that's to be our master. And when we identify with our old self, we don't have freedom. Instead, we remain captive to the sinful nature and the practices of our old self. But if we reject the old and identify with the new, we then become empowered by the Spirit to hold the old at bay. When we embrace the new self through Christ, the Holy Spirit has right of way and our lives glorify God instead of being enslaved by ourselves. Galatians 5, and we've got a lot of airplay in Galatians 5 today. Paul writes this, The old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is just opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. Well, that's pretty clear. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. Wow, do we ever tap into... Sometimes we think about self-control like this drudge of, Oh, I've just got to try harder and, and not do this, not do that, not do this what about self-control that actually pursues what the spirit wants? What the new self wants? The spirit does something in us and it should create a desire for something good. And, and if there's, a, there's actually a desire in our new self that we can pursue, we can give energy to that.
1: It says, these two forces are
0: constantly fighting each other. And your choices are never free from this conflict. In other words, day to day, our life is a journey of diligence. And we choose which self we feed. And we choose which desires we want to pursue. The new self has desires that we can pursue, not just
1: limits on what we can't.
0: I love how the freedom of the Spirit just feeds into that. So self-control is in some way a journey of winning the battle of selves. Put on the new self that identifies with and obeys
1: Christ, and we become the master of our world. And when we're, the new self is in control, we're not held captive by the old one. I said earlier that, it, that self-control is named as a fruit
0: of the Spirit. The fruit of a plant is arguably the most surefire way to determine what you have planted in your garden, right? I've got a tree in my backyard. I've lived in my house now for a
1: bit over two years. And it's grown about a foot.
0: I discovered it amongst a weed garden. Cleared everything away. I think it's a fruit tree. I want to say citrus. I want to say lemon.
1: But that thing hasn't produced anything that gives me an indication of that yet.
0: And I've had visitors come through and go, oh, yeah, you got some fruit trees. What is that? don't know. What's it put out? don't know. Nothing yet. Until that thing bears fruit, I can't tell you what that tree is. We can surmise, we can guess, it looks like some things, the foliage, the, the trunk, the growth of it, anything. There's lots of indicators. But until it bears fruit, I can't tell you what sort of tree that is.
1: In the garden, we might get a bit confused by foliage or trunks or other things, but fruit doesn't lie.
0: And it's the same in faith. We're able to measure what we have within us because things born of the Spirit bear fruit. And if self-control has fruit, I believe it can be examined and evaluated. And there's two areas of examination I want to suggest for us today. If we want to think about self-control, I also want us to stop and think about
1: self-awareness. One
0: way we can measure self-control is through the means of self-awareness. Are we a suitably spiritually-minded, self-aware person?
1: And I'm not talking about the self-awareness of bravado. There's a self-awareness I have
0: that is actually quite arrogant. I can be very boastful about my proud Dutch heritage, and I can hide behind that and call it, yeah, and, and I can be aggressive, and I can be arrogant, I can be rude, I can be very pig-headed, I can be not very generous. I can do those sorts of things and kind of go, oh yeah, it's just my Dutch heritage, it's what I do. That's self-awareness, right? But It's flawed. Because it's a self-awareness that actually is not reflective to the point of change. It's just a boast. Some of us hide behind self-awareness like that, and that's not healthy. There's a self-awareness that actually causes us to be reflective and bring change in our life. Psalms 139. David prays this. Search me, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, and if there is any, see if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting, right? David is aware he has limitations and is capable of many failures, and he was. But he was humble enough to allow God to illuminate the shadowy areas of his heart and self. I love the areas of examination that are in that verse. He's actually looking, he's talking about search my heart, search my thoughts, search my direction. It's his inner workings, it's his motives, it's his thought process, it's the dark patches in his internal makeup. And he's going, God, search it. I know it's there, help me find it. If we allow ourselves to be examined like that, not just boast in our stuff, but actually go, how aware am I of myself and and the things that are in me? Self-awareness makes a massive difference in us if we can get a handle on it.
1: I've got a bit more Galatians 5
0: here. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your lives will produce evil thoughts sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your little group, (laughs) envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. I think this is from the message. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, He will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is no conflict with the law. That's actually NLT.
1: Self-awareness grows. When we ask some healthy questions about ourselves, who's in control? Us or the Spirit?
0: What's driving my thinking right now? Me and my desires or the Spirit? Whose influence is at work in my life?
1: The voice of falsehood? Incorrect doctrine? Or the Spirit? What does the fruit of my life look like right now? Sinful self or spirit self? Am I aware of my weaknesses in a reflective, non-bravado sort of way? Are the defences up? Many Christians
0: fail because they haven't put the right defences in their hearts and habits. A person without self-control is is, is like a defenceless city. Are there breaches that need reinforcing? Self-awareness asks these questions about self-control. Can I go into that establishment knowing that alcohol is served there? Can I spend time around that group of people and not conform to their behavior? Can I go to that magazine rack at the service station and get that car magazine without looking at other stuff next to it? Should I just wait to go to the safer news, news agent instead? Is this guy or girl I'm talking, dating, hanging with going to be a stumbling block at all? Can I enter that area of conversation without blowing up in anger about something?
1: What is my body telling me? What
0: thoughts are going through my mind? What needs to be held captive and what defenses are down that need to be put up? When we grow in the area of spiritual self-awareness, we can set up spirit-led defenses against the workings of our old
1: self. So self-control
0: works hand-in-hand with self-awareness. And self-control also works in the area of self-discipline as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, remember that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. You also must run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I am not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. I remember when I was in my peak physical space. Right now, a lot of you are aware of my own weight loss journey now and my, like right now, I'm the lightest I've ever been. But am I the fittest I've ever been?
1: No. My early 20s,
0: 128 kilos. But really, really low skin folds and very, very fit. I could run hard, I could hit the gym hard, I could do all these great things, I was pretty massively built. Couldn't ride a bike, I took one home in two pieces, I was too heavy for it. Snapped the frame. From the neck down,
1: I was in incredibly good looking shape. The neck up has never been good.
0: but there was a point where everything just went ballooned out because the self-discipline to maintain that was ridiculous. Keeping ourselves in bodily shape is actually a really hard job, isn't it? All these professional athletes and the training they do is just absolutely over-the-top sort of stuff to stay in the shape that they're in. Tiger Woods used to say that he always expected to win tournaments. Otherwise, why play? At least in his golf swing, he was an incredibly disciplined guy who trained and played with a full intention of winning. Paul likens our Christian walk to a race, one that must be competed in and one that must be completed, and one that must be won. Bear in mind that we're the only person in it. For him, this came by the day-to-day discipline of Christian living. We all have a lane set aside for us in this life. We all have a race to run. There is a finish line. There is a prize. Only the discipline get it. There's an African-American preacher, A.R. Bernard. Awesome guy. He's best known in my mind for the phrase, Suffer the pain of discipline or suffer the pain of regret.
1: Life gets tough and painful, and we have the choice to feel the burn or come out bruised. I love
0: stories like the 1800s. John Orbidan. He's a naturalist in the early 1800s. And he produced a collection of more than 400 life-size paintings of American birds. And that's one of the paintings there. This is the early 1800s. No photography, but incredible, exquisite detail in that image.
1: Here's another one. That's a spoonbill. This is an eagle. Just taking off in flight with their wings just in that motion.
0: The detail is unbelievable in these photos, in these pictures. You want to call them photos. They're paintings in the early 1800s. He was a naturalist. These were designed to capture detail in keeping with his vocation rather than doing stuff like Impressionism or art, Abstract or any of that sort of stuff. Think of him as like an 1800s version of Harry Butler or one of those naturalist sort of guys today. Except with canvas instead of a camera. To produce that sort of work he was known to sit in some of the most extreme conditions in order to sit in a natural habitat and capture the details. It's said he would crouch motionless for hours in the dark and the fog. And he considered himself well rewarded if even after a few even after weeks of waiting he could learn just one additional fact about a single bird. That is diligence right there. We're told there were times he would stand almost to his neck in stagnant water and watch carefully birds on the shore like that spoonbill. And he'd do so while snakes swam past his face and alligators made multiple passes to check him out. That's commitment. One time he was interviewed about his work you go to such extremes, sir. And he goes, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. Understatement. But then his face glows with enthusiasm.
1: And his response is this, but what of that? I got the picture of the bird. That was his attitude. I just I got the picture. Paul wrote this,
0: worldly people display great discipline. The strictest diet, lots of early morning jogs, early to bed while friends go out, intense and painful training regimes, neck deep in snake infested water, to get a prize that even in their lifetime will fade and break down.
1: How much more shall we show the required self-discipline it takes to win our eternal prize? When Paul talks about running
0: with purpose in each step and not missing punches, he's talking about being fair dinkum with his Christian walk. It's not pretend our steps are to have purpose and direction. It's not a stroll to see how things are going. It's a race we sign up for and we trained to win. We don't dip our toe in faith, we jump in. And we paddle and we swim. It's not shadow boxing, it's about getting in the ring and giving our old selves a decent fight. There's a saying in boxing, and more prominently in wrestling, which is a passion of mine, that after a hard-fought fight or demonstration, the commentary will be, they left it all in the ring. When it comes to this area of discipline in my life, I actually want that to be said. I want to know this to be true about me by the end of my time.
1: So this morning, we're going to reflect for a few moments
0: before Cell leads us one more song. And as we begin to explore this virtue called self-control, I'm only just scratching the surface at this point. I just want to ask a few simple questions and give Jesus permission to search us a bit just for these next few moments. Three questions for us. Which self is winning at the moment? There's an old and a new. Which one's winning out right now? Which one are we feeding? Which one are we, which set of desires are we pursuing? Both have desires. Pursue one. Pursue the ones of the Spirit.
1: How are we going with our self-discipline? How self-aware are we? Is it the brash sort of stuff that kind of goes, yeah, I've got some shortcomings, what are you going to do about it? Or is it the stuff of reflection and transparency before the Lord that calls us to change and transformation? What self is winning? How self-aware are we? And how are we going with self-discipline? Let's reflect on those three questions today. Let's pray.